Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. Ladies and gentlemen, what we are going to talk about today will help your relationships, especially if you've experienced any kind of trauma. It's not going to be a typical program on apologetics, but it is going to be with a familiar voice. Uh, Last week, we had Detective uh, Jay Warner Wallace on the program talking about his brand new update to Cold Case Christianity. That book comes out on September 5th. If you haven't ordered it yet, you want to do so, and then go to coldcasechristianitybook.com to get the free digital version. But in uh, recent years, Jim has started to work with the Billy Graham Evangelical Association or Evangelistic Association. Uh, And as you know, Franklin Graham now heads that up. And he's been doing some work with law enforcement that has implications on your life and my life moving forward. And also he's been doing some marriage counseling with his wife, Susie. So this is going to be a helpful session discussion we're going to have here today. Jim, first of all, how did you get affiliated with BGEA? What happened? Um, Susie. Uh, Susie wanted to volunteer. We were church leaders for years. And when we were church leaders, we were always consistently volunteering uh, in a local community at the at the uh, homeless shelters, um, you know, set a free skid row, which is a ministry in downtown Los Angeles, um, at the Orange County Rescue Mission, places like that. So we were always volunteering. And then, you know, I started writing books and now I'm traveling all over the place. And she's like, what? We haven't volunteered anywhere in years. <laughs> What, what mm-hmm. happened? And mm-hmm. I said, well, but do you have a mind? And she knew that there was a ministry at uh, Billy Graham Association, actually at the Samaritan Purse side. There's two ministries that are kind of sister ministries, Samaritan's Purse and Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. And she thought that, you know, she knows that they were doing marriage resiliency retreats for military veterans who had been gravely injured. And it's a really noble cause. And we just were planning on going and serving tables. Well, that ended up exploding into much more involvement with Billy Graham Association. So we were serving for a couple of years in that military um, resiliency retreats and just in a really small way, just contributing in a small way. And then we had the COVID year where the lockdowns and the riots took place. And Franklin Graham said, you know, we need to do something for law enforcement officers. And so we were asked, because we already had some experience working in these resiliency retreats for military, to kind of start to think about, well, how would we serve law enforcement? How would we how would we help people who have been involved in critical incidents where they were gravely injured or uh, some of these folks have lost a partner in front of them, have held a dying partner in front of them. Uh, these folks have been shaken and their marriages are struggling. And sometimes law enforcement marriages can be difficult anyway because of the nature mm-hmm. of the work and the shift work too. So so what can we do for them? And so we've kind of replicated what we used to do with, on the Operation Heal Our Patriots with the BGEA, they call it LEAP, Law Enforcement Appreciation Program. They had a program in place for years in which they would take uh, uh, officers, either retired or uh, active duty officers, and train them in chaplaincy. And then when we have a critical incident, you can send these chaplains into uh, the communities where the police officers have been involved in something that shook them. 
and and they can help them. You know, many times they get saved as a result of the engagement with these chaplains. And so this ministry, it takes uh, four couples uh, for one week retreats in Alaska, and and it's all about maybe eight sessions where we talk about marriage, we talk about how to handle trauma, how to recover from trauma. And we also, uh, it's very gospel centered. One of the things I love about it, Frank, is that it's like the flip of what we do here. You know, often if you're a, a case maker, public case maker, people will call you to do a conference. Many people have seen you and I at conferences, places where people come because they know you're going to be there. And there might be hundreds or thousands of people there, young people, especially I got these reality conferences we do. And they come to see you lay the foundation for the Christian worldview. And often answer objections, kind of clear the brush that's standing between people and the gospel. This is very different. This is a small group of eight people at a time and who don't know who I am, hopefully. Sometimes they do, but if they don't know, that I'm not, I'm not anybody anyway, but if they don't know, I even wrote books, that's even better. Just a regular person who they can relate to. And it doesn't clear much brush. Instead, it goes right to the gospel because it turns out, like we talked about before, the gospel is the cure for every kind of stupid, including cultural stupid, law enforcement stupid, and marriage stupid. So, so this is a place where we are, people get saved. We had 24 couples last this last uh, six weeks we spent in Alaska with couples, 24 couples. I think uh, we had 16 or see, 10 get saved. Mm. Uh, 16 got baptized because we do re- rededication baptisms also. 17 people rededicated their faith and 17 people uh, renewed their, their vows in ceremonies that we do up there. And uh, so it's very gospel centered. And it's um, it's just kind of the flip of what we get to do on the stage here. So it and it's when you see what we've learned, Frank, is if you just get out of the way, God uses that opportunity to do crazy things you just don't expect. And I just want to be there to see it. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it's it's not it's not that I feel like we're really contributing that much. It's more that um, I get to see what how God moves in people's lives, and that's really um, what that's been about. And I'm just grateful. I don't know there's another organization on planet earth that has the resources to do this for police officers the way the BGA does. Mm. And the fact that they're using us at all in this capacity has been, a, a, you know, we, we're just volunteers. We are trained as Billy Graham's uh, chaplains, Susie and I, but we just volunteer. And this is a kind of our chance to do what, what Susie was talking about. Like, where are we volunteering? <laughs> you know, well, nowhere. <laughs> so, so where do you want to go? And that's what where, where we've been over the last five years. What are some of the materials that you provide or some of the lessons, maybe it's better said, that you provide to these couples that have gone through such difficulty and are now trying to put their marriages back together? Give us some lessons maybe that some in our audience might be able to grab onto, at least an idea or two that they can say, yeah, maybe I can I can help uh, move my marriage closer or, or rescue my marriage by applying this idea or that idea. Yeah, well, you know, we talked a little bit about this last week when we talked uh, about Cold Case, um, mm-hmm. the book, that, that really the, the thing that is such an eye-opener for me is the power of this attribute we talked about last week called humility. Mm-hmm. Because that's a, a thing that, that, that I don't think many people would understand the power of humility. And the research and secular research, this is not research done by Christians, secular research shows that if we simply adopt a view, uh, a, a view of humility, that that view, that attribute, humility, it's not something you can pursue. It's something you have to realize. But if you can grab it, you will have a longer life with better physical health, better mental health. If you're a student, your grades will be better. 
You'll be a better employer, a better employee, have deeper, richer, longer relationships. It'll improve your marriage for sure. This attribute of humility, and I think the reason why it's so powerful and the reason why it's kind of a God-ordained attribute, if you think about the entire Christian worldview argues for humility, you can't even enter into Christianity without a first step of humility. You have to bend your knee. You have to realize that there is a God, you're a sinner in need of a Savior, and there is a Savior who's come to do the work for you. And if you can't do that, you, you can't even embrace Jesus as Savior to begin with. So humility is something that a lot of us working in law enforcement end up uh, struggling with. And the reason why is because you put on a superhero uniform and then you go on the job and they call you into difficult situations to do what? To solve it as if you have the authority to solve it. Like you walk into that room and you're Superman and you're supposed to just say, okay, we're done. I'm leaving. I'm not coming back here tonight. Problem is solved. Who, who has that kind of authority and power? Well, it's, it's if you're not careful, that kind of thinking leads you to a place that's reflected in your marriage. And even if you're not a, a, a police officer, this is something we all struggle with. You and I were laughing last week about this this book that Mike mm -hmm. Adams used to always say that he had written. You know how I how to become a humble in uh, in ten easy steps and how I made it in five or six or whatever <laughs> whatever stupid number he had, right? Because it is something we all struggle with. But it's because pride is what is killing us that the solution has to be the antithesis of pride, and that is humility. So why would you be surprised that that one attribute? has more power to change your life and your marriage and your career than any other attribute. And the only way you're going to achieve it is for you to have a painful awareness of the glory of God. And when you adopt that painful awareness of, oh my goodness, Isaiah had that awareness. He suddenly Isaiah, dropped to his yeah. knees and he said, you know what? I'm not worthy to stand in front of this being that is the master of the universe. What does God tell Job? You know, mm -hmm. poor Job, you know, he mm -hmm. has a life full of trauma and we know he didn't earn that. We know that because in the first two chapters, God says that this is a man who's blameless, not, not, uh, you know, uh, sinless, Completely, but innocent, he hasn't yeah. done anything to cause what's about mm -hmm. to happen to him. And Job doesn't get to read those first two chapters. Job has no idea why this is happening to him and spends what 30 plus chapters saying, why, why, why? And then when God finally does come down in that storm, he never tells him why he just says, uh, do you think you're God, Job? You apparently don't understand the difference between you and what, who I am and what I hold together. The, the, the majesty of the universe in every linked part, every butterfly effect, you have no idea what the connections are. I do. Do you think you're me? And when we have that painful realization that we're not God, it's the beginning of healing. It's also the beginning of, of, of a different kind of life with your spouse. Because you, you realize if two people, now this is what's the great thing about it. If, if both people come up and they haven't thought of these kinds of issues before and they end up getting saved. And we baptize them in this icy water because Alaskan lakes are not, not warm. Um, you know, then, then they go home serving each other in a different way. You know, what we see also in marriages is that humility, um, there's been studies on this. There's one study, I think it's out of the East Coast from a university in which they looked at marriages and the ones that were the most successful marriages are marriages that when a spouse was asked to rate their spouse, on a report card with things like compassion and patience and all the virtuous attributes you have in marriage. Well, when a spouse rates their, their, their spouse, let's say I'm, I'm rating Susie and I rate her really high, give her all A's. 
Well, when she rates herself, she ends up rating herself with C's and D's. In other words, when you think more of your spouse than your spouse thinks of themselves, you're likely to have one of the best marriages. Well, how mm-hmm. do you, how does that, why does that work? Because that means your spouse is probably coming from a position of humility mm-hmm. because they don't see themselves as worthy as you see them. So the best marriages are those marriages where the spouse rates their spouse higher than the spouse would rate him or herself. Humility does make a difference in your marriage. It changes marriages. And a lot of what we're trying to do up there is to help uh, cops who have always had to come in and act like they're like many lords to realize that there is a Lord. Go to Isaiah chapter six, ladies and gentlemen, for that experience Isaiah had. And of course, you Mm -hmm. read the end of the book of Job, you'll see that. You can also consider this, that scientists have estimated the number of stars in the universe are about equivalent to the number of grains of sand on all the beaches on all the earth times 100,000. In other words, the number of stars in the universe are equivalent to the sand grains on 100,000 earths. Those are stars. They're not planets. They're like suns. And we are just on one of those stars. And this is why the heavens declare the glory of God. This is why the Bible says that. Because when you look to the heavens and you get this unbelievable sense of the awesomeness of God. I use that word awesome advisedly because only God is awesome when you when you think about it. Yeah. Uh you realize that you you are not as big as you thought you were, and there is a God. Uh, but I've heard this, Jim. Let's see if we can get a good definition of humility. You know, people have said that humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. That's mm-hmm. been said. Uh, the Oxford Dictionary, uh, Dictionary says humility is a modest or low view of one's own importance or humbleness. Is there a a better definition or a nuanced definition that you would say, here's what humility really means? Yeah, I show that definition. That's really a quote from C.S. Lewis, right? That it's not thinking of uh, Mm -hmm. less of yourself. It's about thinking of yourself less. Mm -hmm. He's half right. I think it's both. I think that's what scripture tells us. It is about putting other people, thinking more highly of others than you do of Mm -hmm. yourself. So that really is about Mm -hmm. thinking less of yourself, not just less Mm -hmm. time spent thinking of yourself, but thinking of yourself as, and this is why marriages in which spouses do that are amongst the best marriages on planet earth. That's why if I rate Susie and she rates herself lower, she's thinking less of herself. And and so that's why those marriages are, are thriving. So I think it's a it's a both end. It's not an either or. And so I tell officers, no, you have to realize that. And, and by the way, this is something that you ought to like learn to live with. And as, as an old guy, it's easier to live with because, you know, I'm not the man I was 20 years ago. I'm not as fast as I was. I'm not as strong as I was. And as we age, we kind of realize we get a, we get a self-realization that and I think sometimes that's why it's a little bit easier. And so when I work with these officers, I, I try to show them the version of themselves that awaits them. <laughs> Sorry. It's just the reality of it. You cannot be the biggest alpha dog in the yard. You're not going to be able to control every situation with the size of your arms when you get to your 60s. You're going to figure out another way. And mm. I think that's helpful. I think the other thing that we talk about a lot too, uh, Frank, is, is that we have this issue about identity that we struggle with. And you and I do talk about identity a lot. But mm-hmm. how I see it is a little bit different. I connect it to trauma. Because it appears that trauma is almost always connected to a, a, an abrupt change in the way you see yourself. Now, trauma is typically defined as 
an event that changes that 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 basically uh, surprises you. It 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 shatters your uh, expectations of the world. It shatters your worldview. So if you're somebody, for example, who thinks, well, look, I'm obedient to God's uh, commands, He'll bless me. And then you're, you you get cancer or your son dies, and you're thinking, well, but God, I've been faithful. What what's what's happening here? Your your view, your view of yourself. I'm an obedient Christian. Now Job starts to ask. Was I an obedient? Yes, I'm sure I was an obedient Christian. He's like struggling with his identity. Who am I? Right in that book. And so it, it, it could change. It could be that, oh, um, I, I believe that um, I'm a really good athlete and then I get cut from the team. Well, now I don't see myself as a really good athlete anymore. And now I'm struggling with the way I see myself. It's an identity issue. And, and, and even when you have a tragic injury, I thought I was a uh, tactically sound officer and this dude jumped me. And I ended up being shot twice. I no longer see myself as this courageous, tactically sound officer. I'm not even sure I can do the job anymore. It's an identity issue. Oh, I, I, I suffered uh, like in the military. I have two legs blown off. I'm no, I'm no longer the man I thought I was. It's an identity issue. Trauma almost always is accompanied by an abrupt change in the way you see yourself and in the way you see your world. So a lot of what I'm working with these guys and gals is to help them see like who, how do they really identify themselves? Right. What's the, yeah. What's the solution to that, Jim? Well, you know, we talked about it. You've, you've talked about it public mm-hmm. and I have too. The way we typically form identity is only three ways you can form it. There's an inside out an outside in and a top side down. You know, you can either say that I am whatever I think I am. And you're going to base that on your achievements, on your desires, on your personal attributes, on your sexual preferences, that's all coming from the heart, basically, from what you think of yourself. That's an inside out approach. You're just developing your own identity based on what you think has value. The problem, of course, with that, again, if the identity is grounded in something that can change abruptly, you're going to suffer trauma. So if you would take that approach, get ready. You know, I, I identified myself as a rock star for the first probably 17 years of my life. I play guitar more, probably more minutes than anybody else had at that age. I mean, that's all I would do is play guitar. And then a dude named Eddie Van Halen showed up mm-hmm. on the scene and mm-hmm. I realized that I'm, I could be good, mm-hmm. but I'm never going to be that dude. And if your identity is based on your skill set or your preferences, well, there'll always be a better version of you out there somewhere. And that's hard to deal with. If you're going to reach outside yourself to grab an identity from your family identity or your occupation, what happens when those things change? Right. And those things do change. But if you could look up and grab your identity uh, as a child of God, you receive that from Christ and become a member of that family, that doesn't change. And because it's transcendent, objective, and doesn't change, it's far less likely to cause a point of trauma in your life. And if I can, I might have other parts of my, everyone's got a primary identity, a secondary identity, a tertiary identity. This is why in your bio, it'll say, I'm this, 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 and this. And you usually put the most important one first, right? So, so if that first one, if you see yourself first and foremost, a child of God, well, then the other ones can fluctuate. I can retire from law enforcement and still be okay because that, yeah, that part of my identity has changed, but, but I'm still a child of God. I'm still Jim. I'm still in Christ. And, and I always say it this way, if you, if that's where you put your identity, the highest thing, all the other types of identity fall in line. So I always say it this way, when we're up at, uh, in Alaska through the windows of where we do our sessions are two of the top five mountain peaks in North America, Foraker, which is, you know, uh, about 30 miles away and Whitney, which is now called Denali, which is about 50 miles away. Well, if I'm training for Denali, 
I can probably do the smaller peaks. I can, because I'm, if you're training for a marathon, you can do a half. Mm-hmm. So if your identity is in that higher thing that I'm, my goal is that I'm going to get all the other things, husband, employee, detective, father, brother, those things are going to fall in line because I'm placing, I'm, I'm running for the marathon and I'm going to get the half thrown in. So I think a lot of these folks come up and they don't realize that, you know, and I always say that, that the second peak is not your job. The second peak is your marriage, your family, your parenting. Your job is a much lower peak. The first peak mm-hmm. is Christ. Right. I'm training for that. And every other peak below that I'm going to get because it turns out that my Christian identity informs my identity as a, as a, as a, as a spouse. It informs my identity as a, a father and now as a grandfather. So I think that's, that's why we have to help. Off. This is why I tell them all the time. We, yeah, am I going to give you 10 communication tools? Yes. Am I going to give you four conflict resolution tools? Yes. Does any of that stuff really matter if you're not in Christ? No. Because if it you're not humble, right, right. If humility yeah. is the key, and if I can adopt that view, those things are going to emerge as byproducts. One of the mm-hmm. things I tell um, in marriage all the time, I'll, I'll say, look, this is a skill set I think will, will emerge from this way of thinking. And I learned it about a year after I became a Christian. Every conversation with Susie changed. And the reason why it changed is because I no longer saw that as a conversation between me and Susie. It's been said that the best marriages are 50-50. And of course, that's not true. Mm-hmm. And you might say, well, just to be uh, you know, grandiose, oh, the best marriages are 100%, uh, 100%. That's not true either. The best marriages are 100% to zero, where I give her everything I'm supposed to give her with zero expectations from her. Now, she may respond. I don't care if she does or doesn't, because how I behave with Susie as her husband is between me and God. How she responds as my wife is between her and God. I'm no longer having this conversation with Susie. <laughs> I'm having this conversation with Jesus. I'm no longer measuring it transactionally. Like, oh, if I say this, you should say that. If I do this, you'll do this in return. No, the transaction is not with Susie. My expectations are to be met by God. I have to meet his expectations, right? So that's what I'm, when that made that shift, when it was no longer a transaction where I perform a certain way, expecting mm-hmm. to get this result from Susie, everything changed in our interaction. And that's something you can adopt if you are a, a believer. If you are somebody who believes there is a God who has gotten, has tried to advise me on how it is I ought to respond as a husband. And that's why I say, if you aim at the taller peak, you're going to get all the smaller peaks that are thrown in because it's not as though that pursuit, my pursuit of God actually helps my pursuit of everything else. We're talking to Jay Warner Wallace, ladies and gentlemen. His new book, by the way, coldcasechristianity.com. Actually, now that I think about it, just came out today, September 5th. Mm-hmm. Um, you should pick up a copy. We're talking about a different topic today, however. Jim has been doing some work with the Billy Graham Association, and it has a lot to do with helping people who have been through traumatic events make their lives better by accepting Christ and getting their identity from God. Christianity is the only worldview, ladies and gentlemen, where you don't achieve your identity, you receive your identity. And Jim, as you were just saying, when you receive uh, your identity from God, everything else then should fall into place. Mm -hmm. Uh, Where can people go, Jim, to get some of this material? Uh, Obviously, they can't come to this Billy Graham event unless they're invited. 
and they're part of law enforcement. Are there recommendations you have for materials that might help yeah. people? In well, this? I, I think I think that you know Billy, BGEA has a website, and, and, and unfortunately, it's it, it, there's still this is still in its infancy. We are now in our third year. We did the first sixty couples uh, through this program, and I know that it'll blossom into something. You know, the OHOP side does. We just did six weeks, and we did twenty four couples this year. Right. The OHOP side for a military is going uh -huh. to do 17 weeks with 11 couples a week, okay. a much bigger program. And I, I yeah. suspect that at some point this could never be quite that big because mm -hmm. of the nature of the work we're doing is much more intimate, right. but I do think it'd be more robust. But right now, if you go to the Billy Graham uh, website and just type in LEAP in the search engine there, LEAP, you'll see this all listed with pictures of everything we're doing. So we actually take applications from people who have been tragically injured or involved in critical incidents and are struggling in their marriage. And that's what we, we those are the people we consider. And we've gotten them from all over the country. We had an LAPD officer. We've got people from North Carolina. So from my part of the world, from your part of the world, from as far east as Washington, as far north, northwest as Washington and south, as we had two from Florida last week. So so we, we cover all of the four corners of, of, of the nation and people come up. And, and what we see is that it's not always that that they've had a trauma that now is wrecking their marriage. It's often that they bring things in from their childhood. So they had issues before they got married. They continued with those issues once they got married. A trauma simply magnified the issues after the a trauma. And now we're at this point wondering, well, a lot of it starts sometimes in how we're raised. Mm -hmm. So we have to go back all of this, kind of dig out all that stuff first. But one of the things I'll say to you, I know we're going to get short on time here, but I, I just know that one of the things that was powerful for me is understanding what you know trauma is. If trauma is defined this way, and it is, as something that shatters your expectations of the world, shatters your worldview, then there's a way to, to cope with it that is unique. And the secular research now is showing this. Um, and and so for example, let's say you're going along fine in your life. Everything's good. You've been working as a cop for a number of years. Everything, no, no tragedy yet. No tragic, no, no, you know, kind of aggressive uh, crisis incident in your career. And then you have this crisis incident that knocks you to your knees and you're no longer performing at the level you used to. Now, how do we get back to where I used to perform? Maybe you, your idea is, is maybe you, I had an injury, for example, in 2000, I think it was that I didn't think I was going to continue my job anymore. I thought they're going to retire me. I think I was only like 12 or 13 years in. I couldn't let that happen. I couldn't afford to be retired. So what do you do? Like, how do you get back off the ground? And if you don't get back off the ground and you perform at a much lower level on the backside of the injury or the backside of the trauma, what we call that PTSD. Hmm. If we can get back to where we were performing before, we call that resiliency. But what I'm hoping for the officers and the marriages that come up to us is that they're actually not going to come back to the same level they were before the incident. But instead, they're going to thrive on the backside and perform at a much higher level. That's called post-traumatic growth. How do you get from the trauma to post-traumatic growth? Well, the secular studies call this meaning-making. Isn't that interesting? Mm. The Christian worldview has been talking about this all along. Forever, yeah. Yeah, we, we don't call it meaning-making. I call it meaning-finding, thanks to mm -hmm. Amy Hall, who, mm -hmm. who is one of our good friends at Standard Reason. She says, isn't it really more like meaning-finding? Yeah, it yeah. is. Because we know that not just any meaning you make up for your life is going to suffice. You need to find out, is there truly a meaning to life, a transcendent, objective meaning that doesn't change, that could guide you? And when people can figure out how to place the trauma, 
and the overarching story of their lives to see what it is, the trauma has, how it has benefited them, what might God be doing with them, they flourish. If they can make sense by finding the meaning in the overarching story, that would require two things. Number one, you'd have to believe there is an overarching story. And you can't just make one up. It will suffice, but it won't be as powerful if there actually is one. When Job sees how his suffering fits into the overarching context of his story, he can then thrive. So what we're trying to do sometimes is to help people see how does this tragedy fit into the overarching story. And that is something that all of us need to think about. And that's why the gospel is one of those cures for everything, right? Because it turns out the Bible describes us the way we really are, the same way it describes the world the way it really is. And it describes the power of humility. It describes the, the power of meaning finding. It describes all of these things, the importance of marriage, the importance of fatherhood, the importance of understanding that balance between grace and mercy. These are the things we talk about with officers. But these are things that are ancient. They're not, we're not making this stuff up. We're just mining it out of this book that happens to describe the world the way it really is. Jim, there's one other issue I want to bring up with you. Yeah. Because it's going to have an impact on everybody listening. Mm -hmm. Maybe not immediately, but five or 10 years from now. Mm -hmm. uh, there's been an attitude shift probably since the George Floyd incident regarding law enforcement. As I understand it, and you know it much better than me, when an officer now gets involved in some sort of altercation, uh, he may be completely in the right, but as soon as he pulls his weapon out, he suddenly becomes the suspect. Yep. Uh, this is driving people away from the noble, um, the noble profession of law enforcement. And you said it many times before, without law enforcement, we don't have a society. We don't have civilization. It's the foundation if you can't be secure in society, you're never going to risk any of your resources. There's not going to be much commerce going on. Right. The economy's going to tank. People are going to go into tribes. It's going to become more like Mad Max than it's going to be a civilization. So yep. what is happening and what can we do to prevent it or at least alleviate the attitude that people have taken with regard to law enforcement? I think we have to make one critical decision because uh, mm -hmm. I think cops who are being hired today are asking themselves the question, do I take this risk? I can't tell you how many times I have heard this last summer when an officer is pushed by a suspect, ambushed in several cases, ambushed by a suspect and has returned fire. One was uh, ambushed and was shot at 36 times, returned mm -hmm. fire and struck him and killed the suspect. And the first thing he was thinking was, did I just put my family at risk? Did is am I am I going to go to jail for this thing? I was just I mean there's no if you look at this thing objectively you're thinking no dude you're doing your job and you got ambushed. Yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah right. But, but this is the first thing that's going through the head of officers now post George Floyd. Now look, there's no way we're going to condone stupid behavior on the part of, of officers. Of I'm not, not. going to do it. You're not going to do it. So yeah. that's the only people who are most impatient with stupid from an officer perspective are, are officers who try not to be stupid. So, so I think that for most of us, we would say, yeah, we're not going to tolerate stupid behavior, but what do we do when we're just backed in the behavior that is part of the job? We don't have an obligation to be shot before we defend ourselves. Because if I take the first shot, if it's a head shot, I'm not going to be able to defend myself. When that guy is raising his gun, I'm going to pull the trigger because I cannot wait to be hit first. 
I may not be able to defend myself at all. So we have to ask ourselves a question. Is that acceptable anymore by our culture? Is it accept acceptable to do one of the two justified murders, or justified killings, I should say, that's not murder in the in the uh, scriptures? You are, are allowed in scripture to use any level of force, up to and including deadly force, to prevent an attack which will take your life. Self-defense is still a justified killing. Uh, when I when protecting the life of an innocent, I can use any level of force up to and including deadly force to protect the life of an innocent. Do we still believe those things as a culture? We have to ask that question. And number two, most of these activities of police officers, I mean, I think people think that police officers basically just respond to calls and we do. But a large share of what we do is what's called self-initiated field activity. It's when we have a patrol division. Firemen don't have a patrol division. There's no self-initiated field activity for firemen. They respond to calls only. But you expect us to patrol neighborhoods to suppress crime. Well, how do you suggest we do that? Do you still want that to be part of our duty? Because if it turns out that the trouble I get into is something that I could have avoided by simply sitting back in the parking lot and taking a nap until you call me, we're going to have an entire generation of officers who are more comfortable sitting back and waiting for calls. And there's no point in being the first person to that call, because if I do, I'm just going to put myself at risk and you people aren't going to support me. If I happen to get into a shooting, I'm just going to end up going to jail for it. So you know what? I'm happy being the fifth guy who gets there. That kind of response, now I'm not, that's not happening yet, I don't think, but it's coming. Because we're punishing people who are who, who exercise self-initiated field activity. We are punishing those people. And what I'm seeing is that we're going to recede back to like, like firemen, <laughs> nothing against firemen, but they don't have a patrol duty. Right. And so we're going to just fall back into that thing where, hey, call us if you need us. We'll get there eventually. We'll take a report. We're not going to get out there and try to stop anything before it happens, though, because that you, we just get punished for that. So there's no point in us doing that. So as a culture, we have to decide those things. Number one. Are we going to allow our officers to defend themselves? Number two, are we going to want them to act proactively? Because we can certainly just react, but that changes. Here's what I would suggest, and my son always says this, that when an officer gets in trouble and does something stupid, it makes has a huge impact on law enforcement. George Floyd had an immediate, severe impact on law enforcement. But when people just stop doing the job they ought to be doing, you don't see the impact of that for five, six, seven, ten years. And then when it happens, you've let the snowball grow so big where no one's enforcing the law and communities have been enforceless. And you're not going to turn that back, folks. Well, there, there, I mean, there are neighborhoods. We all know where they are. We, you know, people that live in these big cities like Chicago, L.A., New York, they stay out of the neighborhoods. Cops don't go in there. That's right. Right. They, and, they, and because, they, because why should I go in there? Yeah. What's, 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 yeah. what's, 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 nothing good can happen. And look, here's yeah. two things that cops are, are trying to do and hold in perfect balance. One, I want to serve my, my community selflessly. Two, I want to get home at the end of the shift. Mm-hmm. So we're trying to hold those two things in balance. Yes, I want to serve my community, but I have kids too. And so the question is, you know, what do we expect of humans trying to do this job? So mm-hmm. that's where I'll, I think I would leave it with you, but I'll tell you that that is something we have to consider as we go, as we go forward. Yeah, I make a point not only with the military, but also when I see police officers to always verbally thank them for their service. And they always appreciate it. You know, you just stop. You go, hey, thanks for your service. People need to They need to be encouraged. And one of the problems is in recruiting, Jim. People are just not they're not being recruited or they're they're not even thinking of going into law enforcement because of the problems that we're experiencing now, the attitude that we're experiencing now. 
Yeah. And when you listen to uh, how officers are paid across the country, yeah. you know, unless you're in a big metropolitan area, I'm in Los Angeles County, that's different. But if, if I'm working out of a small town in, in Mississippi, there's a good chance I'm making pretty close to what the people are making at Starbucks. So mm. why in the world would I take this risk? Yeah. with so little potential reward. So it is important for us to think about that as we go forward. Here's the last thing, and I'll yeah. we can end this, but I would say that the pendulum always swings, right? We see it in California. It swings toward leniency and then it swings back towards towards strength because we have all this high, high rates result. And so we always think, well, it's going to swing back. Don't get complacent on that, folks, because yes, the pendulum swings, but it's sitting on a table, which is slowly leaning in one direction. So when it does swing, it swings way out to the left. And then when it swings back, it doesn't swing quite as far back as it used to because the table is now leaning to the left. And we're going to have to think about uh, what we're willing to put up with. And this is why you see people leaving those areas where law enforcement has changed and going to those smaller parts of the country where law, what, what's the difference? Oh, it's, it's green. No, to be honest, if you're in California, you're not going to get any better weather than we have here. You're not going to get any better financial opportunities in terms of the jobs that are offered here. This is a, we're close to the beach. This is a wonderful place to live. What's the difference? It's going to be the way it's policed. And right. if, it, if the police change, you're going to want to live someplace where it used to be like it was back in the old days. You know, I, I add a little levity to this. Uh, there are some, some chiefs or some sheriffs that do support their men regardless. There's a guy in Florida. I can't remember his name. He's a pretty famous sheriff. And, uh, and his guys got into a, a a gun battle with a with a real bad guy, and and the, so the media came to him and said, uh, "Can you explain why you shot at this guy sixty four times?" And he said, "Yeah, because we ran out of bullets." <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> because, <laughs> and, and you know, part of that too, part of that too is like it's really important for us to think about this is that you know it's not as though we're shooting in the range. Right. I always know when I've got a pursuit that's ending, okay, you can't expect that hypervigilance, what we call this, this idea that we're constantly looking out to see what it is that's going to kill us next. Hypervigilance mm -hmm. has its toll. It pumps our adrenaline. It keeps us at a high adrenaline level. And then we get off duty and we crash. And that's why we present the worst to our spouses typically, because with the, the, the hypervigilance to keep us alive on the job is when you're the best kind of communicator you can be and you're the most mm -hmm. observant you can be. But here's the problem with it. At the end of a pursuit, you don't have, you are now acting from the amygdala. You are responding primitively from the amygdala because your adrenaline has pushed your thoughts at that. You're not thinking frontal lobe. You're thinking fight or flight. And at the end of that thing, that's when if I can just get through the first four minutes if that, without anything bad happening. Everything from that point on will be measured and thoughtful because you're frontal lobing it. Okay. But mm -hmm. if I'm not frontal lobing it because of the biochemistry, which I experienced because of my hypervigilance, I'm at the end of a pursuit. Who knows what might happen? So this is the problem with the job. And if we don't recognize those biology issues, then I, I, like when I watch a pursuit on TV and then everyone's hopping out of the cars and they're chasing each other, I'm thinking, okay, we're still in amygdala all the way through here. Who knows what might happen? And then what happens when the guy turns and fires two rounds, everyone empties their magazine. That is not about I'm trying to be obsessive. No, that's just biochemistry. Right. And, yeah. and we have to understand that. And, and, and realize that you have to have some mm -hmm. grace. If that was mm -hmm. you, trust me, you'd empty your sure. magazine too. Sure. Until the threat was reduced, you know. Well, friends, take all this to heart. Use any influence you can to uh, support your law enforcement. We know there are bad apples in every profession, but that doesn't mean that then you can't support the majority, vast majority of them who are great. And if we don't have law enforcement, friends, we're not going to have a civilization and you don't want that. 
So, Jim, thanks for the work you're doing with these guys. I also want to point out that you and I and the great Elisa Childers are going to be this weekend in uh, Lebanon, Tennessee, at Defending the Truth Apologetics Conference. So, friends, if you want to be a part of that, it's near Nashville. Uh, check us out there. Go to crossexamine.org. My calendar's up there. So is Jim. Jim, uh, Jim, Jim Wallace's yep. calendar is up at crossexamine. Yep. You can also go to his website, cross uh, or, or coldcasechristianity.com. We have several other events coming up. You can go to our website. I'll be at Florida Atlantic University. I'll be at uh, uh, the TPUSA Pastors Summit, Clovis Hills Church in Fresno, Fresno State coming up on the 18th. Several others. Go to our website. Look at Jim's calendar as well. Pick up the new book. The 10th anniversary edition of Cold Case Christianity. Dot, or Cold Case Christianity. You can go to coldcasechristianitybook.com for more on that. And Jim, as always, great having you on. Thanks for having me on, Frank. I appreciate your dear brother. All right. That's, that's Jay Warner Wallace, the great Jay Warner Wallace. Check out his website, too, coldcasechristianity.com. And Lord willing, friends, we will see you here next week. God bless.